0: Hey, everybody, welcome back to the Muscle Intelligence Podcast. I'm Ben Bukowski. As always, living your greatest life in a body you absolutely love is the mission and message of this show. We show up as great people, we do great things, we lead from the front, and this is no exception. Today's guest is a world class coach, Brett Bartholomew. If you don't know Brett, you're going to want to pay attention. Brett is the owner and creator of the Conscious Coaching Platform and the Art of Coaching. Now, Just because you're not a coach, or you may or may not be a coach, doesn't mean you don't need coaching tactics. Why? If you own a business, if you interact with other employees and coworkers, if you have children, you have a desired outcome that you need to coach somebody through all of the time in your life. And the strategies that Brett Bartholomew talks about today are utilizable across the board, regardless of what your objective is. Knowing how to support someone through their journey to accomplish their mission is a superpower. It's a really, really important thing that I value and uh, I've become good at supporting people through their process. And there's so many things that go into this, all of which we discussed today in this podcast. Today's podcast is brought to you by a very new special product that I want you to pay attention to. So you guys hear me talk about nutrition all the time. And my, you know, maybe the framing of which I give you guys around nutrition is like, hey, yes, what you eat matters. Like, we need to source the highest quality food no matter what. It does matter. I don't care what anyone says. The quality of the food that goes in your mouth is of utmost importance. But so too is the state of the system that you're putting it into. So if I'm putting a, healthy plethora of foods into an unhealthy system, it doesn't interact as well, right? There's gonna be a different response. So I have to place focus on yes, what's going in, but also the state of the system on the inside. So I have to give my body what it needs to uh, recover, to repair and ultimately thrive. So the product that I'm speaking of is called Leaky Gut Guardian. Leaky Gut Guardian is a product that I've been using for about four to eight weeks now, maybe coming up on eight weeks. And I absolutely love it. And it's power packed with probiotics, prebiotics, and one uh, unique ingredient that you've probably never heard of, and I hadn't heard of. And it's called IgY Max. And it's a derivative of eggs, it's an egg based protein that enhances gut health, reverses damage that can be caused by antibiotics, and it can even help with immunity. So uh, it's an incredible new product that, as I say, I'm loving. One of my favorite things about it, because this is super fun, is that it actually comes in a vegetarian vanilla flavor, but wait for it. It also comes in a chocolate carnivore flavor, which is enhanced with collagen and bone broth for additional gut healing and anti-aging benefits. So whether you're a vegetarian or you're a carnivore or someone who is an omnivore, you can enjoy either or both of these amazing products, both of which have tremendous benefits. So simply adding one scoop to your coffee in the morning, uh, or to your favorite smoothie pre or post-workout. My preference is usually f- pre-workout for me when I haven't had a lot of food. Uh, it seems to work wonders to my digestion, to my bloating, to my inflammation. I wake up every day feeling tighter. So it's been an amazing addition to my uh, repertoire. So you guys can check that out at leakygutguardian.com muscle and use the code MUSCLE10 to receive 10% off your order. Everybody, I'm sitting down with the conscious coach himself, Brett Bartholomew. Welcome to the show, man. Hey Ben, thanks, buddy. Appreciate it. And um, as I briefly mentioned before, um, jumping on the recording, um, you know, for a long time in my past, I had been a coach. I have been an online coach. I've been an in-person coach, and really focused on the tactics. I was all focused on the sets and reps and the volume and the load and the calorie uh, in, calorie out mindset. Uh, and I realized a very small percentage of my people actually got sustainable, effective results, and really reached a peak. And now as I kind of uh, evolve as a human, I realize there's so much that lays beyond the, the, the tactics, we'll say, right? The sets and reps. And uh, this is really where I stumbled upon your stuff. And um, you've been doing this for a long time at a very high level and teaching people this concept of conscious coaching. I'd love to first have you describe what that means and maybe some of the, the core values and tenets that you suggest we embody to become conscious coaches.
1: Yeah. I mean, straightforward. It just means that somebody that, and there's always a smart aleck that's like, oh, uh, as opposed to what an unconscious coach. The, the term conscious is used as a descriptive, uh, like kind of a, a metaphor to scaffold reasoning of saying, hey, you're aware of all the things. What I look at is somebody, when that book came out, there was such a fetish, uh, a fetishization of sports science. And when coaches would go watch other coaches, it's always, what equipment do you have? What drills are you doing? what, And they'd miss like the actual coaching. Right. And I knew that for me, like the ultimate test of myself was if I had to coach, if there was some kind of coaching game show and it was like chopped, right, where you had to make the most out of what you had with minimum ingredients that didn't go together. That defines my coaching skill. If I have a 25 pound dumbbell, right. like what can I do to get the most out of it without fluff, right? Without being like, okay, now we're going to do a burpee and this and this. And like, what can I do with it? And there was just so much obsession with these things external to what coaching was and then on the other hand, if you did read coaching books, a lot of it was kind of you know inspirational, and and this is not to be disrespectful to those authors, but it was if you had read one coaching book, you had read them all, like transformational leadership, servant based leader, this that whatever, which is fine, but that doesn't really talk about the context and chaotic a- approach of real coaching. You know, the majority of my experience, and I've worked with a wide range, was professional athletes and. Whether you're dealing with professional athletes or members of the military or kids, they all are going to have agendas, right? Like they're not all going to communicate the same way. And it's not as easy as being, oh, just be empathetic and and vulnerable and show them you care. No, some of these guys are going to test you and they're going to question you and they're going to be a pain in the butt. And so I just wanted to put something a little bit more real and tactical out there that would help coaches understand. You can't just throw this like Betty Crocker list of traits out there and say, that's coaching. Or hey, just be show them how much you care all the time. And there, there's plenty of athletes that I worked with that knew I care, but it, it took six weeks to kind of break down the facade so you could actually coach them. And there's other people that have called me out in training sessions and you got to learn how to manage that conflict. So conscious coaching in that context meant like, hey, you have an awareness of social psychology, behavior, your own behaviors, because most coaches, when they reach out to me, are like, Hey, I got this athlete or or another coach, and they won't buy in, and they're kind of stubborn. And I'm like, "Yo, what about you? What role do you play in this?" And yeah, that's that's what we wanted to really dive into a
0: holistic view of of what goes into this. Very cool. So the one term that came up there is buy in, and it seems like, and, and tell me if I'm wrong, but it seems like that is a foundational piece of you know the coaching uh, client exchange, right? There needs to be some degree of. Of trust ultimately, right? We're, we're, we're doing something or we're establishing some mechanism of trust. And as you say, that is completely different person to person. Some people may come in and just go, man, I've seen what you've done with this person, this person, this person, just tell me what to do. And then you've got other people who are ultimately shit testing you. Like you say, I'd love to just get into some of the, the tactics behind creating buy-in and trust. Yeah. I mean, I, let's
1: let's talk about the term first and foremost. When I use the term buy-in, we, we define it as trust plus commitment, right? So, um, there, there's there's many different ways when you interact with somebody, especially if you're leading them, that their behaviors are going to manifest. And if we had to put it into three main categories, it could be commitment, compliance, and resistance, right? So commitment is they feel really good about the task you're asking them to perform and you as a person, right? They're fully bought in from a ta- Like if you say, hey, Brett, um, I, you know, I want you to, uh, you know... Do, I'm trying to give a non-strength and conditioning exa- example. Hey, but I want you to go down to the homeless shelter and uh, help feed, help feed some folks. You know, during the holidays. And if I'm aligned with those values, right, which I should be, and I get along with you, and I don't look at it as some menial task, which I don't, I'm going to go do that, and I'm going to do it with you know fervor and vim and vigor and all that. Now, let's say somebody uh, th- they feel right about the task, but they don't. They're not quite trusting wholeheartedly of the person or vice versa. Maybe they love, they really like the person, but that what you're asking them to do kind of seems unclear or vague or maybe against their beliefs, that's more likely to lead to compliance. They'll do it Ben, but they maybe won't do it with the same kind of tenacity as somebody else. So you can look at this as an athlete. An athlete knows he needs to train, but if he doesn't know that heavy squatting can actually reduce risk of ACL tears you know, he'll do it because you've told him to do it and he probably respects you as a coach, but is he going to do it at the highest level as somebody that, nope, I get the science. I get why we're doing it. I'm fully bought in and what have you. Um, and then there's resistance, which, you know, that's where somebody feels, uh, Hey, no, I, I'm not, I'm not on board with this, with you as a person or the task you're asking me to perform. So just so people have an idea of the kind of meta categories there. So when we talk about buy-in, it's trust plus commitment and, um, yeah, I want to make sure that that's clear right there. And then tactics, I mean, they're innumerable. You know, like the the, the bottom line is if you want to get somebody, I, I guess if I had to consolidate a 300-page book uh, simply and, and oversimplified is we say there's a 3R approach. You have to research, relate, reframe. Research means you actually have to understand the person you're talking to. And the biggest... The biggest bunch of BS I got from some coaches who I think were just lazy is early on they'd be like, "My coach, you know, 50 athletes at a time. I don't have time for this." And I'm like, "Sorry, guys, that doesn't cut it." Like my past experience is training larger groups of athletes as well, oftentimes with only one or two interns. But you would have some college strength coaches who have five people on staff and like 13 interns say they don't have time to really understand, you know, the the hey, where's this athlete come from? Are they an only sibling? What are they like outside of this? You have to have as much as many details as you can about a person, because those are all anchors and possible touch points for you to relate things to, right? Like there's, there's innumerable amount of ways to relate to it. And you already talk to athletes or or clients, whoever your population is about, Hey, you know, how'd you sleep? You know, what's, what was your nutrition like last night? How's your soreness? What have you, all I'm talking about is micro, like micro dosing little questions over time that allow you to get to know somebody, you know, that's, that's pretty basic stuff. And once you research, you're you're able to better relate to them. And I don't mean relate as in like you tell them all about yourself and you know you sit down and have this Dr. Phil moment. I mean like Again, whatever you're trying to teach related to something they previously alluded to. Uh, you know, summarize, like l- help them understand that you get where they're coming from or you get their point of view. And then finally is reframe, right? Like what can you do to make sure that anytime you communicate, now you're always tying it together. What they know, what they experience, what they fear, what they doubt, what you know, what you experience, what all these things, and tie it in a common vision. You know, it's it's a way oversimplified way and that's why, you know, we, we wrote the book and did follow-up courses and still produce content. But for the people that just got into this podcast, research, relate, reframe is a lot of what this comes down to.
0: The uh, idea of relate sounds like uh, emotional intelligence in a nutshell, and, and assuming that most coaches are uh, high in emotional intelligence may be uh, a very uh, long stretch. Because from my experience, you know, whether it be in the personal training space, whether it be in the, in the strength and conditioning space. Um, most coaches have been brought up, and you probably came in this, up in the same kind of, uh, you know, niche that I did. Is like there was no emotional intelligence, man. It, it was it was live and die by the sword. So trying to embody or, or um, teach coaches this, or become aware of emotional intelligence, um, I'd love to have you go down that path because um, there's huge amounts of value there that I don't want to just assume people have any idea of what that is and how that how to come about acknowledging that?
1: Yeah, well, for sure. Well, the research backs this. You know, I'm doing my doctoral, uh, like I'm doing all all my doctoral work is focused on this. And talking about emotional intelligence, you know, the term we use is social agility. You know, how to be different variations of yourself, and express, you know, the human language differently depending on who you're around. I think it's it's bothered me. Um, And again, this isn't an attack on anybody listening or who believes in these things, right? You have to understand that my research just comes from a different standpoint. And a lot of it's tied to what I've experienced in my life a lot of coach education has been again oh you're emotionally intelligent if you're just in tune with the athlete and again you're vulnerable and you're empathetic those things aren't always good you know like you really need to be adaptable there's no there's no drop down menu or Pins chart or cheat sheet for leadership You know, being a servant-based coach or a transformational coach is really not going to work well if you're dealing with an athlete that has high ego. You can talk about team goals and and bigger picture values, even if you own a play a business, right? You can talk about larger, uh, bigger picture business stuff, but you're going to have people that are inherently narcissistic and some that are motivated by their own agenda, and that's not good or bad. It's just like fire and physics. It is right. Like you still have to need to know to get on that level. And so, you know, a lot of our work is really helping coaches be a little bit more self-aware of not only the stuff that they do, because the, the research shows, I mean, we've interviewed over a hundred coaches uh, for my doctoral work and, and they all say that communication's important. They important. They all say, you know, I asked them to rank themselves as communicators and and what have you. But then Ben, when we asked them how they formally evaluated themselves, right? Like, oh, okay, well, you say communication is important and you, you rank yourself as such. How are you formally and regularly evaluating this in, in an objective or subjective way? The vast majority of them say they don't have a tool to do that. Uh, the vast majority say, well, if they do, it's like feedback form from clients or friends, or every now and then maybe they'll videotape themselves coaching. But also that one is any governing body of personal training, strength and conditioning, or otherwise expose them to interpersonal skills training of any kind. Something that we actively do at Art of Coaching. We now, we're the first entity that literally provides workshops, both digital and live, on how to deal with this stuff. Um, So I just think people need to understand that when they're talking about emotional intelligence, it starts with a level of self-awareness and how can you have optimized self-awareness if you're not getting evaluated or putting yourself in a situation where you're actually like, the effectiveness of how you interact is communicate. You're just kind of guessing and I'm sorry, you can't just say, well, people seem to, to like me or they come to me. People might come to you or like you for a variety of reasons. That's like saying somebody got stronger because you put blank in their program. No, they probably got stronger for a variety of reasons. Yes, they did what's in your program, but they also had to eat appropriately. They also had to get sleep. They also had to do a wide variety of things. And You want to get more uh, uh, detailed about how you track that.
0: Can you talk about some strategies on an assessment? Because that sounds like um, you know, the only way that comes to mind for me is like, hey, I'm actually going to ask this client how they would subjectively interpret or assess my relations with them. Thinking that that leaves some bias, some room for interpretation. So I'm curious what you guys are doing to objectify um, that personal assessment.
1: Yeah, we have a seven point scale that when people come to our apprenticeship workshops, we put them. We really modeled this workshop around Kolb's experiential learning. Uh, so, you know, we have a combination of of lecture, role-playing scenarios, video breakdowns, group case study reviews, all these things, and, and professionals from every field. I mean, we've had personal trainers, we've had members of the police uh, force, we've had uh, lawyers, we've had business owners, we've had athletic directors, training coaches. It's, it's really cool from that standpoint. But essentially, I'll give you one example. We might put people in a certain role-playing type scenario, say a strength coach, uh, has to explain a certain movement to five different people in five different ways. Maybe they represent members of a different uh, generation, right? One is a millennial, one's Generation Y, one baby boomer, one's what have you. We put them in these overload type situations, whether somebody views them as realistic or not. It's not about whether you're coaching a baby boomer and somebody from Gen Y and a millennial in the same group. It's about the fact, right, that you need to understand how to flex and and use different forms of language in the moment to adapt, right? You you may not deal with that scenario, but you might deal with somebody who's more analytical, somebody who wants more uh, metaphor-based examples, somebody that's more skeptical, right? So it's all representations of just a a constraint. So we'll put people in these constraint-based scenarios and then we use our form again. It's got a seven-point scale of seven different areas that the research is validated within interpersonal skills and in communication to say, hey, you know, how do you think you did in these meta categories? And there's a variety of subcategories. So, for example, I'll give a base one uh, in just the straightforward communication category. There is verbal and nonverbal, right? And and that is how is your tone, how is your clarity, how is your conciseness, uh, how is the cadence of your speech, so on and so forth. Nonverbal might be. Proxemics, like what was your spacing like with that person? Was it appropriate in the context of the scene or the game? Uh, haptics, did you utilize touch, right? like, And, and was that touch, the form of touch based on the, the role you were in appropriate? And, and we're not talking about like sexual you know, misconduct. We're talking about like uh, anything like that. Um, it, we all got something called orchestration orchestration is a meta category. Uh, and, and when I say meta categories for people listening, think of this as like uh, the interpersonal equivalent of SWAT, hinge, push, pull, run, jump, right? That's what I'm talking about. Well, we have seven interpersonal skills-based categories and underneath that is, is what comprises them. So orchestration is, hey, you know, uh, how well did the conversation follow a rhythm of relevance, of flow? So let's say you're out to dinner with somebody, and you ask them for whatever reason about the dog, they got a new rescue, right? And you're very interested in that. You want to hear about it. And they start talking about the weather. Well, that's poor orchestration. Now, a, a coaching example might be if an athlete challenges a coach at a certain topic or says, hey, why are we doing this? And the coach gives them kind of a non-answer and redirects it that's poor orchestration. Like You can't run from that kind of stuff in real life. You got to be able to address it. You got to be able to reframe it and you got to be able to push that back to them. So uh, we have have a variety of different things that we'll do. We grade and and scale people on listening or what have you. So they give themselves a score. Uh, We also do well uh, the group people that weren't in it as individuals will score them. And then we have them get into pods and they'll score them as a group. So what we're looking for here is not a perfect number. No perfect interaction exists. Just like no nobody could look at movement and say, "Oh my gosh, that's the perfect squat." Well, that's going to depend on somebody's you know inherent anatomy and physiology and biomechanics, right? We're not going to get somebody six five spotting as somebody that's. Five four and their hip structure is a certain way. But what we're looking at is this perceptual gap. So Ben, if you score yourself, and I'm just gonna give you a random number here. Let's say you, self, you give yourself a 24, and out of the categories that we've evaluated, uh, 26 was was the highest number. But everybody else is like, well, Ben, I didn't see it that way. Based on what I saw in the video breakdown, I had you at about a 12, and here's why. Well, that's an issue. Now, you could get really defensive about that, and some coaches do. They might say, well, you don't understand. Here's our situation you would lose in that scenario because it's not about who's right and who's wrong. It's about uh, every day in life, even if you do the most altruistic thing in the world, somebody's going to perceive you a certain way, right? So that's what we really do. So people have something tangible that they can hold in their hand, that they can take back with their staff and they can actually score them and they have these things broken down categorically. So it's not quite as subjective as it normally would be. Does that explain that fairly clearly?
0: 100%. That sounds fantastic. And I love the idea of of objectifying these things. And it sounds like the foundation of it all is self-awareness, right? Like becoming aware of how you're perceived, how you're coming across. And then this meta level cognition where I'm thinking about my thinking. I'm thinking about how my, my words are going to be perceived by you. And then obviously this, this idea of personal development and, you know, what do I have to develop about myself as far as one self-awareness, two skills to then impart the message I'm trying to deliver. Exactly.
1: Cause you know, when I wrote conscious coaching, I didn't want it to just be, all right, here's a book, good luck. Right. So we made an ecosystem of we have a book, we have a SQL online course because we know some people are gonna want digital content and that's bought in. And then it's like, all right, now for people that want the real nitty-gritty, now now we're expanding this. So we we wanted to hit every medium, the written, the digital, and and then the live and interactive because. There's a, there's a need for that that's been established in the research. There, out of 256, and, and it's probably more now, coach development programs per data gathered in 2016, fewer than 4% focused on any kind of interpersonal, intrapersonal skills development. And if it did, it was more the rah-rah. They don't care what you know until they know how much you care. And it's that stuff is fine and it's got its place. But we just wanted to have something a little bit more tactical for people that are ready for deeper discussions and, and challenge themselves in that aspect.
0: Amazing. So we talked about buy-in, and we're progressing through a client experience or a co- client coach relationship. Now we had a roadblock, and we're saying, okay, this client has bought in, and now they're having a hard time. Maybe in their self-confidence. Maybe they're having a hard time in their ability to follow through. Um, you know, they're just not getting the results they want, and it could be for any number of reasons, right? And, and they're, maybe they're starting to push back, or maybe they're starting to start to disengage. Um, what strategies do you have in that? Situation as far as maybe assessing and then you know reframing. Do you do you have another uh, process?
1: Yeah. So if I'm hearing you correctly, you're saying what happens if you have somebody who has been bought in uh, and is bought in, but is kind of just kind of sliding off track a little bit? How do we get them yeah. back on?
0: Or maybe they've lost their the, their belief in themselves and their ability to actually get a result, and they're starting to revert back to old bad habits. Yeah, I think that you know to give a,
1: an example, so it's more tangible. You know, I worked <laughs> with an athlete once that had eight years in the NFL and. Uh, had gotten kind of uh, busted for something in particular, nothing performance enhancing, right? It was more of an attitudinal thing. Uh, I mean, you see it, like there's Rich Incognito behind me, right? And this is somebody we've known for a very long time. And some things that he said while, uh, you know, for, for many reasons, people could find distasteful, and in the context in which he said it, you know, was. But you know, there's also this other story to it, and and Richie's very open about battling with mental health or what have you. Richie is is one of the best offensive linemen that has ever played the game. He's somebody that we love, and uh, he had gone through something and was being punished for and again, rightfully so. And he's a good friend. And He won't hear this, but if he did, he'd probably be, you know, he'd come back to me about some things. But uh, bottom line is, he had to train with me for a while, separate from the group. And the NFL had basically banned him for a year, and paparazzi and everybody were at his house, and they were banging on the door. the newspaper was telling him he was the the worst person ever because things that were said in locker room humor were taken out of context. And again, some of them were not super tasteful, but none of us were there. So like we, we all we all have examples in our life where we've sent texts. we've done things that we're not proud of, right? and And he was facing the repercussions of that. And I just remember, you know, there was a point in time where he was starting to slide off track because this is a guy that's used to competing with other people. It's now an entire NFL off or season going by. He's not playing. And I remember one of the things that I started doing was bringing in newspaper articles every day when he started to kind of slide off track and I posted them up on the rack. And I said, listen, I don't want to resort to this man, but every day you start to slide off track or every day that you don't come in here just do what you need to do, what they're saying about you in the paper becomes more and more true what they're saying about you in the paper, you know, starts to become more of a reality, how people are going to judge you because you're, you're ultimately judged by how you you do under pressure in, in these moments. And so what's the reality here? You know, and I don't think it's really not somebody that's going to, you know, pump somebody up and hold their hand and what have you. I'm, I'm going to make them face some level of accountability. Of course, I'm going to listen to them. And I think that's important for any coach is you've got to get to the core of the matter. But you also have to kind of make, I feel like, Nothing gets better. And again, I'm biased. I was in a hospital for a year of my life. Nobody came to save me, Ben. You know, there was nobody there that was just like, hey, I really want to get to know your problems and your passions and, and let me help you through this. I had to work through my own shit. And so I think that, you know, I try to facilitate that. I try to create an environment where people can't really run from the reality they face because ultimately, if I if I do motivate them out of it uh, in some kind of superficial way, they're just gonna fall right back off. And that's why I'm not a coach for everybody. So I think you got to look at the situation and you have to say, what's eating them? Is it is it a personal kind of sense of self-doubt like you alluded to? Is it the situation they're in? Is it the interaction between a sense of self-doubt or whatever they're thinking and the situation? Yeah, it's usually that interaction. So what you have to do is you have to give them a, a way to find their way out of it. And you got to hope that they pick up the ball because you can't will them. You, you, Long term, you can't will anybody to change if they don't want to.
0: Sure. But you've got a unique scenario where these people are coming to you and, and they're probably pretty bought in, in what you've got to say. I'm sure a lot of coaches out there are running into this reality of, of fear. Like if I say that to my client, they may confront me, say it to my client, they may leave. Maybe I don't have the, the freedom to be like, hey, like you're, you're doing this stuff and, you know, ultimately you're hurting yourself. And, and a lot of people in that scenario, in his scenario, may have pushed back and you actually got offended. Um, any strategies there on like one, how to overcome the fear, how to be confident enough to confront somebody like that, and then maybe how to um, engage with that person if there is a confrontation that exists? Yeah, I
1: mean, let me be clear. I, I've had that as well. So People don't just come to me because they want to. I very much developed a reputation in my career of, of guys kind of sending their problem athletes to me. So there were people that... Were sent to me that absolutely did not want to train with me. You know what I mean. But their coach, when they're looking for a place to to have them do their off season training, you know, knew that I had particular interests in kind of the misfits and the outcasts, right? And this is something that I identified. It's one of the archetypes in my book, the Wolverine. I, yeah. I was very much like that, and have been very much like that. Um, you know, here's here's the thing, and I'll liken it and I'll relate it in several different ways. <coughs> Excuse me, as as I shifted my brand, maybe mainly just from strength and conditioning to coach development as a whole, right? We do more stuff in leadership now, communication, psychology. I knew that temporarily I'd take a hit in popularity and strength and conditioning. I knew there'd be some people that followed me on Instagram that now that I wasn't posting, you know, uh, awesome videos of world-class athletes every day doing things that some people would lose interest. But I also knew what my long-term goal was. My long-term goal has been to improve the way coaching in, in totality in a way that's synonymous with leadership is done. So it serves more people. So my advice to a lot of these folks is you, you have to understand at some points in your career, you are going to take a short-term hit for a long-term gain. You know, if, if you are trying to appease every client, every person that comes your way, well, what's the future you're setting yourself up for? Your business is going to be dependent on you trying to keep people happy all the time, as opposed to people understanding like, your own niche and where you come from. So it's it's a unique balancing act because, of course, you got to keep the doors open. And, of course, you've got to address these things. But it's so different now, Ben. If somebody comes to me day one, I say, guys, listen, I'm not the coach you go to if you want a lot of fancy Instagram stuff. I'm the guy you come to when you realize all the fancy BS didn't work. I'm the guy that's going to kind of give you tried and true methods, and we're going to get after it because it's not the nuance of the drill. This is what it is. Now, I have to be okay with not everybody coming to me. I have to be fine, and I am. So I think you just got to ask yourself as a coach, like... What what's your level of confidence in your vision going forward? What you want to be, the kind of environment you want to have. Now, if somebody just has to deal with raw conflict right out the gate, and we're switching gears, had that too. I had Terrell Owens look at me and basically tell me, you know, I was full of shit in my mid twenties about something that I was trying to explain to him about the benefit of getting stronger and lifting heavier weights. And reality is, is all you can do is be really candid. You know, you can be really candid and say, I was like, listen, dude. At the end of the day. I assure you I have better things to do than try to come to work all day and find ways to make you worse, right? Like I don't get paid by using a certain strength training method. At the end of the day, my job is dependent on getting you better. So if you don't view this as a way to do that, let's meet in the middle. And we've lost that element of frankness. So I tell people, be frank, cut the bullshit. At the end of the day, no matter what kind of social climate we live in, somebody's going to respect that. And if they don't, what's the alternative? to lie to them and just be a people pleaser so that you know, they can help you pay your bills? I don't know. I'm not saying be rude, don't don't listen to that. Some people are like, well, fire your clients or your athletes if they're not a fit. I'm not saying that at all. I'm just saying be very candid, straightforward, be transparent and understand that you're not gonna be able to please everybody at all
0: times. Is this part of your course? Because I feel like this should be part of, um, like, kind of implemented into society as a whole, is the, the idea of you know, be able to be frank, uh, stand your ground and like, hey, this is my beliefs. This is my value system. And if you don't agree with that, that's fine. But um, we can agree to disagree as as adults and then move on with our lives. Yeah, it's
1: a, it's a big part of our course both bought in and valued. We talk about these things, and a lot of my next book focuses on that because we've lost we've lost the ability to do this. Right, we have this false dichotomy of black and white in our in our country about a lot of things, and not country, just world. Everything's so polarized, we've lost the fact that, you know, uh, growth occurs in the gray area, right? Like greatness is in the gray. And that's why now a lot of our our work, especially in live workshops, we talk about power dynamics, manipulation, influence, persuasion in reality and how to deal with these kinds of circumstances and situations. Because, again, I don't know what your listeners know about me, nor if they care. You have to appreciate it. At 15 years old, I was in a hospital surrounded by nurses, doctors, psychiatrists, psychologists that were all subject matter experts. But at the end of the day, they were not very well connected to actually what was going on with me or anybody else in the hospital. They kind of saw you as symptoms instead of people. So they tried this one size fits all approach to deal with this shit. And instead of a place that should have been about healing and and people getting better, it was very much a power ridden dynamic where if you didn't kind of say what they expected you to say, if you didn't do what they expected you to do, you know, as me as a minor, I was going to be in that hospital for a long ass time. So I had to learn how to be selectively dishonest and show different variations of myself just to get out of that hospital. At some point, uh, it was an awful place, and and we're not taught how to deal with situations like that. Whether it's a bad business partnership, whether it's a toxic relationship, no matter what, these aren't things that we're often taught how to deal with. So we're trying to help people
0: with that. You bring up something very interesting there: selective dishonesty, and, and a lot of us are, myself included. Are um, very much um, exploring the concept of honesty and when it's okay to be dishonest and when it's okay to not be dishonest. It sounds like you ran into a scenario there where selective dishonesty was absolutely a necessity. Yeah, that-
1: without a doubt. and and honesty is really the best policy, not not depending on how people feel about honesty, but the policy. I mean, think about all the things, awful things that people have done in the world, where it's like you know, well, were you being honest? But you could be honest in the fact that like. Yeah, I planted a bomb, you know, or yeah, like I feel this, like it's it's crazy to me. And there's a great story back in World War II about, uh, you know, one of the ways that the Great Britain got America to join the war is they used propaganda, basically. I mean, when nearly all hope was lost, they had this story and they cultivated this story about how, you know, British soldiers had, had actually para. Uh, uh, parachuted in with Tommy guns and grenades, and they were staging this valiant last ditch effort against the Germans and what have you. And none of that happened. But at the time, MI6, which is part, you know their intelligence agency, had cultivated this kind of propaganda based story in order to do these things. And so every day we come up with these these kind of when people say, "Oh, I don't lie," I don't, you lie every day. You know whether it's telling a, a pregnant woman that oh you know you you don't look big at all you know or, or this and that or you tell somebody that you know is uh, and my grandfather uh, was in hospital for quite a while and, and cancer just you know cannibalized a, a lot of his you know how he looked and what have you and and it's not like you're going to go in there and be like uh, there were there were people that were like hey you look better today and he had no tolerance for that you know I remember one one nurse went in to see him and they were like you know how are you doing. And, uh, you know what he, he had had the type of cancer that started as testicular cancer and then got into his lymph nodes. And he's like, uh, you know, cause they said, oh, you look better. And he's like, you kidding me? He's like, you know, th- th- this thing has taken the two things I, I use most. And again, your most for anybody that doesn't want to hear this. He goes, you know, my, my balls, and my voice. And they were like, you know, they looked at him and they just said, well, you know, you don't have to be so cynical. And he goes, I don't want to be told something that that doesn't serve him. Right. He was a pragmatist. Just like I'm not going to go up to one of my athletes that asked me for honest feedback and then, and then give him something that's fluffered. How does that help him? And, and that's where, again, I know it's polarizing for some, but guys, you know, being dishonest, I'm, I'm not talking about, I, I want to think about how I phrase this. We're talking about a dimensional scale. We're talking about a dimensional scale. Every virtue can be a vice. If you're somebody that is a very giving, loving person, well, you can also step over that threshold into being self-sacrificial and incur, like, incur burnout, right? Like if you don't have boundaries or what have you. Similarly, obviously, if somebody is very manipulative in the negative connotation, right, they're going to erode relationships and their ethics over time. But there's a time and place for us to wear different masks. These masks have to be extension of ourselves. And you do it already. Right. You don't talk to your in-laws the same way you would your buddies on a road trip right? You don't. And uh, I think if people were a little bit more realistic with themselves, they could kind of cut through the superficial BS and realize, yeah, I need to be more skilled at managing the dark side and the light side so I can find the gray area. If that doesn't make
0: sense, I'm happy to elaborate. No, man, it makes perfect sense. I think there there needs to be some awareness of an intention behind your words. And I think a lot of people have a hard time um, not coming at a a confrontational situation with some some fear that... um, comes through in their words. So confronting someone like your grandfather did and like you did um, doesn't come intuitively to a lot of people, right? It seems like it's built into our society to either repress it or if you're going to say it, you're going to say it in a way that's kind of, you know, tongue-in-cheek condescending. That's almost going to like set people off. So it almost sounds like a skill. That's why I'm asking if it's built into your courses because like I got to figure out what's my intention behind this? How do I make this come across? Not just how I'm saying it, but how they're perceiving it in a way that is um, constructive rather than accusational.
1: For sure, I mean, in our digital course, bought in, we talk about nine different influence tactics that have been vetted at the academic level by a gentleman named Gary Yukel, and we adapt his work. There's soft tactics, hard tactics, and rational tactics, and we use these every day. An example of a rational tactic is when you get it, uh, you try to change somebody's behavior through giving them statistics and figures. Well, how's that going for COVID, right? Like we can tell people all the stats in the world that doesn't necessarily change behavior neither did it, it it didn't do that for smoking either right there's not many people out there you know south or north of the north sentinel is sentinel island folks that don't know smoking is not good for you right mm-hmm. but like every day somebody lights up and who are we to judge that's their deal right um so that's that's an example of a rational tactic a soft tactic ben would be like an exchange tactic so ben let's say that you you went out and uh, um, we're going to grab, are you married, Ben? Yes. Okay, so let's say your wife, me, my wife, it's not COVID, we're going out kind of for a double date thing. And uh, I picked up the tab for dinner, right? And you're like, hey man, you didn't really need to do that. You know, I'm like, that's fine. You get the movie, right? Boom, that's an exchange tactic. We do it every day. With my athletes, I might say, hey guys, if you make this rep in this amount of time, we'll shave off a rep, right? Is that clear? Pretty straightforward. That's an exchange tactic. Um, now let's go to a hard tactic. A hard tactic is, uh, and we're using an example. I'm only giving you three out of nine. Um, is a, what's called the legitimating tactic. So if an athlete comes in and they've got uh, they they uh, and I'm I'm the, let's say you and I work for the Miami Dolphins and they come in wearing the shirt of the Tampa Bay Buccaneers. Maybe it was their previous team. It's like, hey, bro, like you can't do that, right? You got to wear team clothing in here. That's a rule. Um, and so rules, policies, procedures, the whole. That's not how things are done around here. That's legitimating. Well, by and large, we find that most coaches tend to rely on rational persuasion and inspirational appeals. Inspirational appeal being, come on, you can do it. Or the the any given Sunday locker room speech, oh, an inch, we fight for that inch. And so when coaches say, I have trouble bridging the gap and connecting with the people I'm working with, generally when we assess, well, what kind of uh, tactics, uh, influence tactics are you utilizing? We educate them on that. And again, it's part of our online course. I'm not trying to come off as salesy. I'm just telling people what they can yeah. do. And uh, and they have to go in and assess that. And then they'll sit there and be like, God, I didn't realize it. But yeah, I'm either kind of, I'm kind of either selling or telling people. I'm selling them being indicative of an inspirational appeal, or I'm telling them based on, uh, you know, hey, this is what it's going to do for you. And again, not everybody connects with that. And so then is it any question why you're failing as a coach if you don't really analyze yourself? It's just very, it's a very egotistical field when you think about it and hear me out because we're so obsessed with assessing other people and seeing where their deficiencies are, whether it's body fat, movement skills, nutrition, whatever. Who the hell is doing that on themselves as a coach from a, from a linguistic and communication standpoint? Right. It's, it's crazy to me because the very definition of coaching insinuates and shows that it's a social act, it is about communication. And then you look at communication as a whole, and I posted this on Instagram today, there's so many components, right? There's, there's the channel of communication. Am I texting you? Am I, am I speaking to you in person? There's what the receiver's thinking while the communicator's talking. What the communicator's thinking when the, when the other communicator's talking. There's our self-feedback. There's how we feel not only about the person, but the message. It's very messy. And I just want people to understand it's not as clean and clear as you think. And it's not just about inspirational nonsense.
0: Brad, in your book, Conscious Coaching, you mentioned 16 archetypes. I'd love to, I know that's a lot to go through, but you can just rip through it. Yeah. But do you still believe in those or have you evolved a little bit since writing the book? Yeah, I'm
1: glad you asked because there's some people that I think read the book and, and we're not entirely discerning. We've all been guilty of that. Nowhere in the book or in my work do I ever say that people should coach universally and solely in a vacuum based on archetypes. Ever, ever do I say that. An archetype is an example or a model of something. We see them in everyday life. If you know somebody that posts nothing but cat pictures on uh, social media, that is an archetype. A hero in a movie is an archetype. A villain is an archetype. Uh, the lovable nerd or loser is an archetype, right? So it is literally a mold of something. And so we all see them. But archetypes are not static. So I'm going to answer your question succinctly and then I'll go into context. Uh no, my views have not changed on it. I mean, are there different examples of archetypes you think of for sure. But my views have always been when you coach, you need to coach in accordance with the person, the situation, and the intangible related to the context. We knew people that literally thought, "Oh, this person is a technician. This person is a soldier. This person is a novice. And I said, make sure you also understand if you if you're going to say that, okay, but they're not that universally. How somebody behaves when they go out to dinner with a friend may be different than when they're in the weight room. May be different than when they're interviewed on a podcast. Which may be different when they're uh, in church. Which may be different than if they're on the beach with their family. So the number one thing I tell people is use the archetypes as a guide, but also you have to understand the nature of the situation. Somebody could be a very manipulative person in one scenario, right? Especially if it comes down to trying to get the best deal for their family on on some kind of loan or what have you. right? And and they could be the most uh, uh, unselfish individual in another scenario. Does that make sense before I go on? Is. Yeah, of course it does. But, but people lose that because again, they try to treat the art of coaching like they do training. They try to say, well, in order to achieve hypertrophic changes, depending on the text you read, right, I need to have five to 12 reps. And yes, I know for the nerds out there, We can do volume and load equated, where you could do cluster sets or what have you. Don't lose track of what I'm saying. Uh, If I want to increase max strength, absolute strength, I'm going to be in the one to three rep range. If I want to, you can't treat interactions like that. Like people are not physiological adaptations. What works for you in one scenario may not work well in another. The way I coach a group of 40 athletes or three athletes for that matter in the United States, is gonna vary than when I go to China or when I go to another country. Uh, what one culture even perceives to be an effective culture leader is gonna be very different. And again, this is the stuff we're trying to teach because otherwise I, I, I fear that most people are gonna read the same leadership books we've all read or, or hear the same TED Talks we've all heard that make people think that again, as long as you're vulnerable and empathetic and this and that, you'll win. You will not. You have to have a wide range of tools. And since this stuff is a skill, you have to get trained in that, and that is what we do now. So I hope, I hope just people take that level of accountability because it's not it's not as simple as just following this list.
0: Right? Do you ever intentionally curate an archetype or try, try to pull someone's? Um, you know, let's say there's an ideal archetype. You, you've decided in this particular circumstance this seems like it's the ideal archetype. Do you ever try to like pull that in and, and develop it?
1: I, I've, I've never really thought of that. I don't try to make people anything that they're not. I know how that worked for me when doctors tried doing that to me in the hospital um, you know and, and you see other people trying to be these things. I guess one example and, and it's good to give a personal life example of you know we've all had different relationships in our life, right And I remember when I was in my 20s I was dating somebody that I very much like at that time like, loved I loved deeply and, and we were in a serious relationship. And they were very much one archetype. And uh, that archetype could be tremendously addictive, but also tremendously toxic. And I think that I had this tendency to always try to make, because I saw the best in people, I'd always try to extract that. And they stayed in what basically became a a super toxic relationship for too long, because I tried to make this person something that they weren't, you know, and... And it doesn't mean that person can never be that. And it doesn't mean they're not a good person because they weren't that. It just means it doesn't always happen on our time. And that's something that I make clear in Conscious Coaching. You can have all the tools in the world as a communicator and as a leader. These things don't always happen on our time. All right? and I, talk, I talk about it as the coaching compass. You have to understand social intelligence. You have to understand the nature of relationships and human behavior. You have to understand what buy-in is and how to get it. But there's also that element of time of things aren't always going to happen when you want them to. That's for anything, right? Like I I had one guy tell me one time when uh, a college brought me out and said, hey, we'd like you to talk to our coaching staff, which was uncomfortable for me because I never go into these scenarios where people have me do services like I know everything, right? Like I just want to go help. Their situation is not mine. My job is to just help them. Well, this particular strength coach took offense to this. He says, "All right, Mr. Conscious Coaching," throws his roster on the desk and goes, "Tell me how to coach all my athletes." And I'm like, "Dude, yeah, uh, you're, you're kind of missing the point here, you know." And let's say I had that ability, no different than a neighbor of mine who was an FBI criminal profiler and did a lot of things with uh, interrogation and what have you. You can't force people to tell you information beyond a point. And there's a lot of literature around this, even people that are interrogated or do use different forms of, and I'm not talking about uh, enhanced interrogation, but we can go there too, uh, like let's use sleep deprivation as an extreme measure. Well, what, what it shows is literally you'll create false memories in that person. So that's not effective, right? Or even if you're using just putting together a behavioral profile, you, you can't control the level of... Um, self-management that... Uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Uh, impression management that that person kind of uh, applies to the answers they give you. Things come out over time. Tendencies come out over time. Behaviors are extracted over time, including your own. So I just think that people have to understand that no matter what skills you have, there's still a temporal element. And that's why it's tricky to try to pull something out of somebody. Now, if it's if it's temporary motivation or self-belief, can we do those things? Yes. Um, there have been people that are... Uh, Self-sabotagers, right? Like, the, and I'm I'm guilty of this. I can be a self-sabotager, and really, what you find is a lot of self-sabotagers are really underdogs. And I'm referencing titles of archetypes in the book. And If I can get them just a little bit more of an underdog in a moment and embrace a chip on their shoulder or an adversity-related uh, piece there, uh, as opposed to you know just kind of seeing the hill they got to climb and how how uh, much work they have to do, that can be helpful. But that's not that's going to require constant intervention if you're not careful. So I think the best thing people can do, Ben, is we have something on our website. It's artofcoaching.com forward slash what drives you. And people can take a test that we put together. And it's not like the disc. It's not like Myers-Briggs. It's not like the Enneagram. Uh, what we're looking at here, because a lot of things are counterbalanced and, and they ask people questions in context, it will help you understand one of the six main drives that you have. And we tell people to take it at varied times in their career and their day and their life because attitudinal shifts will change the responses we give. But if you understand the drives of an individual, that can help do what you said and, and us be able to pull a little bit more out of what they should have and should do out of them at the time. But if they don't understand that individual's drives, you're kind of screwed and you should do it for yourself as a coach too.
0: So I love that you brought up the sleep deprivation question because it actually segues into something I want to bring up so obviously you still do coaching and tactical stuff you're doing coaching in, in the psychological stuff and and I'm curious how much you're um utilizing the the psychophysiological interface right this this idea of how how the body and, and the mind are connected and interrelated and how much you're using maybe heart rate variability or other uh, biometrics to gauge where someone is, uh, you know, as far as the state of the autonomic nervous system and then how that's going to influence their psychological state. So you get someone who's in a state of high sympathetic arousal, they're not going to be as responsive to coaching as someone who's not. So are you looking at those things? Do you think coaches should be looking at those things? Or is it really just like, hey, deal with what I deal with in the moment?
1: Sure. And I want to make sure I answer your question specifically. You're you're saying not only not how do I use these tools to gauge training readiness
0: and adjust their training plan, but more coaching receptiveness. Yeah, we'll stay on stay on the bridge of the of the psychological stuff for now. I mean, we could certainly talk about training readiness. We've done that in the past, but in, in this context, like, does it play into how I approach a client from a psychological perspective? Sure.
1: Yeah, I'd love to tell you that we did, but that technology just isn't widely available yet. And I'll give you an example of the technology we're referring to is there's a company out there that and uh, it's very interesting. They, they primarily reside in, uh, what would you call this, customer service, right? They find that there's a tremendous amount of burnout in customer service because let's say you and I are customer service representatives for Dyson. And uh, no matter what we do, we go up and we show up for our job every day and we answer customer complaints and what have you. And let's say you're very eloquent, like you are on the air. You're very kind, like you are in the air, and I'm sure in real life as well, and all these things. But you could still get yelled at by the person that's pissed off. So what this company has done, this company called Cogeo, is they've created conversational analysis software that says, hey, you know, we're gonna give you objective feedback on on how well you're handling interactions. What are the pauses like? What is your tone and cadence and tonality like? And it uses AI, an AI interface to do this. And that way, even if you and I get yelled at by, you know, uh, you know, Dr. Gusterfield, who's pissed at this broke and he bought it for his wife or Marry so and so who this broke. Well, at least we get a score at the end that says, "Hey, you manage your state okay. You did your job. You did these things." So, what we really would love to do is bring those things into coaching—things that can gauge and 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 uh, whether uh, from artificial intelligence or otherwise, look at the tone, the cadence, and and what have you, and and see these variables like we can with a lot of training stuff, and be able to adapt our communication style off that. The sad thing is uh, with a lot of these companies, that technology, they only make available to Fortune 500 or people that you know want to spend $50,000 plus. It's, it's really odd. And that's why we're trying to kind of bridge that gap. Um, so we haven't found any kind of thing that I can point to that says, hey, based on heart rate variability, this is how we alter our, our, our uh, conversational tone. Because there are some people that are, again, irrespective of what is normal with heart rate variability, they're going to be able to tolerate or they want a certain level of, of, of stress right? And and even if it, this showed, it's no different than an athlete that might be in the red, if you look at all this sports science stuff, like, well, they're, they're still going to have to go play on a Sunday, even if they're in a red, they're going to have to deal with that. So it gets tricky where communication is such a very intra-individual variant uh, uh, dependent experience. I don't think that there's a technology out there that can utilize it. Now, I do use Amazon's uh, Tone. Is it, is it? No, is it Halo? Amazon's Halo. I'm an early adopter to that. Where not only does it track physical activity and sleep and what have you, but for me, it'll give me real-time feedback of, hey, Brett, you're sounding, uh, right now you're coming off as confident and assertive. Or if I change my tone like this and I'm like, Ben, that question's terrible. I can't believe you'd ask me that. This is ridiculous and I'm off this show. It would immediately show me, hey, now you sound angry, aggressive, this and what have you. Hmm. So where that has been a lightning, lightning is at the end of the day, I can get a score and it'll show how well I kind of surf the curve, so to speak, in these four quadrants of, and these aren't the categories they use. They use, you know, I think there's 16 different categories of, you know, am I coming off happy enthused? Am I coming off skeptical? Am I angry? Am I this? Am I that? But what's fascinating about that is the way I coach my athlete and the way this software interprets it is different. I had a, a coaching intensive day where, you know, you would have probably heard me a lot saying, Henry, come on, you know, you know better than that. Or Jack, get deeper. That's not, you know, give me a better effort, what have you. Well, that to my to my tone app is saying you sound angry and condescending. But that's, I don't think there's many people, like at least the athletes that know me, they don't consider that as condescending. They're like, all right, he's, he's getting on me. Like, let's keep sure. going. Um, so it's interesting that sometimes, or one time when I was very angry, I mean, I had lost one day, not in coaching, but something related to my business. I was pissed because uh, a website went down when it shouldn't have, and we had gone through all these things. And my wife was like, God, you just like, you, you kind of lost your cool on that. And I go, well, that's funny because this, this app shows that, you know, I wasn't so much angry as I was sad. But interpreted what, what could have been hostility in my voice is sadness. And that's, that really was the case because we had gone through all these run throughs and these trials, and I had taken a lot of time to do it. And I was really worn out on the fact that it still didn't go right. I was sad, but it manifested itself as anger. So there is stuff out there that can track this. Um, you know, but what you have to go off a lot of times in terms of, you know, I had an athlete that lost a loved one you can see these things. And if you can't, you have to use your, your, your level of social agility to kind of discern, Hey man, like what's going on. Um, but they're not always going to tell you in groups. I kind of, uh, you know, chided a couple of times, what's going on, dude, Dude, this isn't you. And it wasn't until after the session, he's like, yo, like uh, a member of my family was shot and killed and, and what have you. I'm like, got it. You know, like you can come to me and tell me that before the group. And he's like, I'm trying to process this still. Like there ain't nothing to tell. I'm still trying to make sense of it. So, um, some of it, you're just going to have to learn ad hoc until this software and technology becomes more widely available and accessible. And and that's something we want to help
0: spearhead. Who's your primary audience right now, Brad? Is it um, strength and conditioning coaches, primarily people who are in like uh, pro and and high college sports? Well, yeah, I mean, given the fact that I've
1: done it, you know, 15 years, that's still a huge part of our base, I would say 70%, you know, and, and that changes daily, but it's definitely started to go more, uh, uh, military, medical, for sure. We do a lot of helping uh, people with telehealth training now, especially. And in medicine, there's so much that is dependent on the doctor-patient interaction. I mean, there's oncologists that get sued despite you know providing great treatment because the way they convey information wow. was just not good, right? So we see a lot of it with uh, tactical communities, medical community, and a lot of uh, bigger businesses. It's funny, early on, strength coaches were the most skeptical, even though that was my base, because they're just, you know, they're not taught this stuff and they think communication right. is this nebulous term. Whereas I remember one time I was presenting uh, at a company, a large financial institution, and man, I had like five slides that was uh, validating the uh, communication research that's out there and why we were talking about what we were doing. Somebody eventually raised their hand was like, listen, uh, we're with you. You don't need to convince us that communication is important. If we put out an errant tweet at a company, we can lose tens of millions of dollars in our stock dropping, right? Or a CEO can get fired, and that was really refreshing. Because for a long time, despite the relative respect and platform I had developed in my field, you know, people were inviting me to sports science conferences to almost kind of like test me uh, and saying, like where's the research behind this? And I'm like, time out. Like, are you guys wanting to to bet? And it sounds like you are. You're wanting to bet. There's more research on sports science than there is communication psychology. There's a reason people get degrees in marketing and communication and psychology, like, you really don't wanna compare the deadlift research or heart rate variability with uh, the, the role that influence plays in behavior change. Like That's not gonna go well. But what we found is people just took it personally, Ben. People don't like it in certain fields when you tell them, hey, there's more to learn or just understanding science and, and uh, the science of the body and anatomy and physiology and what have you is a prerequisite, right? Like that's what you need to know to get in the game. You better understand social and and psychological tactics if you want to expand it. And so I think once we kind of got past that, first they laugh at you, then they fight you, then they join you in our field and they saw other fields taking to it. Um, All that is a long-winded way of saying, Primary still the performance community, but very much growing uh, medical, uh, corporate, and and other folks as well. We helped somebody run for mayor this year. We did a, a mayoral campaign of helping somebody refine their messaging uh, during the run for mayor, which was pretty cool.
0: And this is absolutely fascinating and fantastic. And I love, we'll I obviously mention the art of coaching, but I'd love to have you mention anywhere else you want to have people find you and we'll send them there in the show notes as uh, in any way we can help you out because this is uh, needed and you're carving a niche that uh, seems like there's very other few people doing. Thanks,
1: man. Well, yeah, I appreciate it. I think the easiest way again is just artofcoaching.com. You're going to be able to find our online courses. You're going to find information for our in-person workshops. Again, everything we do is, is research backed research-based, but also highly accessible and, and, uh, and tactical, right? We don't want to just sit there and have theory. On Instagram, I'm coach underscore Brett B. Uh, it's very easy to find me, although I guess there's some fan accounts, but mine has uh, the verified marks, so you'll see that. We have a podcast of our own, uh, Art of Coaching podcast. You can find that. And uh, yeah, but the, the easiest way to just one-stop shop is artofcoaching.com. Amazing. Do you host that
0: podcast yourself, Brett?
1: I do, yeah. And we do a combination of interviews like we're doing right now and then individual episodes that deep dive into certain topics of a wide range. And it's geared towards leaders of any
0: any field, really. Wonderful. And you do an incredible job delivering your message and I'll definitely be a listener to the podcast. Thanks, Ben. Likewise, man. Really good questions. I'll tell you that uh, just
1: on air before you jump real quick is podcasting, as you know, is interesting. Sometimes you go on there and, and people just kind of like it's like they have this list that no matter where the conversation goes, that's what they're going to ask. So sure. I, I very much appreciate the thought challenging question,
0: the depth. Thanks very much, man. I appreciate you being here. That's a wrap, ladies and gents. Thank you so much for tuning into the Muscle Intelligence Podcast. I hope you love this conversation with Brett Bartholomew as much as I did. Brett is an incredible wealth of information. As you see, he's been doing this for a very long time. He's worked with hundreds, if not thousands, of high-level athletes, pro-athletes, Olympians, and supporting their transformation. Whether you're an athlete or not, or whether you're a coach or not, we're all aspiring to get better at something, right? We should be, and I'm sure most of us are that are listening to this podcast for sure. Um, and the process of getting better requires, one, assessment. Where am I now? What do I want to change? Questioning what you think, you know, questioning your beliefs, questioning your attachments, and then creating a process, right? So it's ultimately moving toward what I want to be, who I want to be, and the process of which I can do that, and that's coaching, right? That's the support of anyone, whether it's your spouse, your children, your coworkers, or just a very good friend, the support of behavior change is massive, and that is the art of coaching. Thank you very much, Bartholomew, for being here. Thank you very much to our sponsors by Optimizers for always bringing us the highest quality products. You guys know I search out the best ingredients, the best products around the world to bring to you at a discounted, price so that you can ultimately thrive and support this podcast because we are ultimately trying to to change the world, right? We're trying to support you in your mission to change your world and that's internal and external and that requires support and this community we're building is uh, exceptional. I'm so glad that you're part of it. Thank you for being here. Thank you for continually listening to the podcast. If you did enjoy the podcast, I would appreciate a subscription, a review and share with at least one person you know and love. And always please support our sponsors so we can make this podcast possible. There's a lot of competition out there, and I know that. There's a lot of podcasts, but we bring you the best guests, the best insights, and the best application. So thank you for being part of the Muscle Intelligence Community. And head over to buyoptimizers.com and use the code MUSCLE10 to get hooked up. And whether you're picking up your P3OM or your magnesium or your mass zymes my three favorite products from them are absolutely phenomenal and they continue to come up with more and they have a pr- a nootropic coming up soon that i'll tell you guys about in the very near future have an amazing day guys thank you for being here much love Ben Bukowski, out. thank you so much for tuning into muscle intelligence if you enjoyed today's episode please be sure to share it with at least one person
1: you know make sure you're subscribed so you never miss an episode